Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Oh, do I have a fantastic show for you today. I can hardly wait. David Wheaton's going to be joining me in just a minute. Then Dr. Ann Bradley, who's an economist, will be joining me in the second part of this hour. And then Dr. Michael Heiser returns with uh, Peter Kapsner and I for a continuation of the study of the unseen realm. It's going to be a great show. Now, if you remember over the last year, David Wheaton and I have been studying the book of Genesis, and we concluded that last time we were on together, and we have moved now into the book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Pentateuch. It's called Exodus. It's from the Greek word for departure, because the central event was the departure of the Israelites from Egypt. These events made Israel a nation and confirmed their unique relationship with God. I don't know how long this is going to take us, but I can hardly Wait, David is the host of The Christian Worldview. You can always go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David's radio ministry, his writing, and his speaking. He's an amazing man of God and a friend of mine, and I'm always glad to have him on the show. David, welcome. Good to be with you today, Bill. Sounds like you've done a little homework on the book of Exodus already. (laughs) I'm getting ready for this one, David. This is going to be fun. I can hardly wait, and I don't know if we have a title for this series, but I'm going to give you another couple weeks to think about that. Well, we have a title. I thought of one. Oh, good. What is it? <laughs> well, let me just talk about some background so, with the, so the, the title makes sense. Um, you know, the word epic, you, you, that's kind of a popular word to use today. But it, it's often used for things that really aren't that epic. Like, oh, I went to an epic, you know, golf tournament yesterday. <laughs> or we had a, yeah. that was, you know, windsurfing or it was epic, you know, that kind of thing. Those things don't, don't hold a candle uh, to the story that unfolds in Exodus that is truly epic. I mean, it's beyond any Hollywood movie. It's beyond the Ten Commandments, even with Charlton Heston, which is pretty epic. Um, it couldn't possibly capture all that takes place in this second book of the Bible, as as, as you mentioned, as the, the Jewish people make an exodus or an exit, departure from Egypt to go back into Canaan, which was the, the land promised to them by God. So the series title I came with it up with is uh, How Epic Exodus Displays the Awesome God. Well, I love that. Because that is really what Exodus is about. It explains just how awesome. And that's another overused word, by the way. But that word is, always, is appropriately used for God and things of God. And so as we look at the, the background here, Bill, do you remember back, for those who have been listening to the series in Genesis, Jacob's the last thing we the last part of Genesis we have Jacob's family Jewish people coming down into Egypt out of the promised land because of this this great famine and that took place around the year 1875 so just keep that year in mind 1875 now the date of the exodus it would be about 430 years later after they came there that the events of exodus started to Take place. So they had been in Egypt, Tal, after being invited down there for over four centuries. 
And so, and this was a very prominent time in Egypt. This was a a major, well-known kingdom dynasty going on in Egypt. It was actually the 18th dynasty. I don't know that much about Egyptian history. I just looked it up. But Pharaoh Tutmos III was the pharaoh of the Exodus. There's a, there's three or four Tutmoses, and people have heard that name. So this was a this was not a weak Egypt at the time. This was a very prominent Egypt. This particular pharaoh was known as the Napoleon of ancient Egypt because he expanded the boundaries of Egypt. And so uh, one little other bit of note is that Moses is not only the main and dominant character in Exodus, leading the people out of Egypt, but he's also the author. He wrote the first five books of the the Old Testament. And so he comes into the story uh, in Exodus chapter 2, and he had these three divisions of his life. The first 40 years, he grew up in Egypt. Then he had to live in exile for 40 years, which we'll get into today. And the last 40 years of his life uh, were spent leading the Jewish people out of Egypt. So the theme of the book is, and this is from a study Bible, a direct quote here, to trace the rapid growth of Jacob's descendants from Egypt to this establishment of the theocratic nation back in their promised land. So that's just a little background of what we're going to be getting into in this series. I love that. So... We're going to look at chapters 1 and 2 today, and so I appreciate the background on, on the book of Exodus. And this is uh, it, it's a beautiful, seamless transition from Genesis to Exodus. So I appreciate uh, this, David. So let's, let's, is there more to talk about there before I, yeah, we move on? Yeah, there is, because you, you might say, well, why did, why did we go from Genesis to Exodus? I mean, but these books are super connected, not only from who wrote them, uh, Moses under the inspiration of God, but even the way Exodus starts out, I mean, the very first word is now, or some versions say and. In other words, it's like you just turn the page and now we're, we're going on. Even though many years have gone by, the continuation of history just picks right up. It says now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, like in case you forgot. Right. Uh, it was Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah, and all those, those brothers that we had just been talking about in recent weeks that held the 12 tribes of Israel, basically. We heard all about them. And it said all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. So it gives you this, like, one or two verses of just remember what happened in Genesis, but now we're, we're in Egypt, and now things are about to change. It says in verse 6, Joseph died and all his brothers of that generation's but it says in verse 7, the sons of Israel were fruitful. And listen to how many different ways it describes how well the nation is doing. The sons of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied. They became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. I mean, what's the point of that sentence? In other words, God's promise to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing, continued on 400 and some years later. This family of 70 people that came down to Egypt, maybe 70, 75, had now grown to over 2 million people in, in 400-some years. And so God's promised covenant with Abraham had already come true, despite the fact that they're about to be enslaved. Okay, David, that's epic. That's epic. Yeah, that's <laughs> epic growth. Yeah, I mean, from <laughs> 70 to a couple million, this is amazing, God's promises and how they're always fulfilled. That's right. They're in a foreign land doing it. This isn't even their homeland. They, right. they, they, they came down there and and, and by the way, the, the, the treatment, the one big change from Genesis to Exodus, because it's such a seamless transition, the one big change is 
that Joseph and his family, you remember, they were invited to come down to Egypt. Remember, Joseph, of course, invited them, but then, then Pharaoh said, oh, yeah, bring your family down. They can live in the best of the land and so forth. So they were favored guests the last time we heard about them in Genesis. But now, 400 and some years later, 300, 400 years later now, things have changed. It says in verse 8, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I mean, the story completely turns on this verse. You know, they go from being favored and multiplying and increasing greatly. Now a new king arose who did not know Joseph. Well, what's that mean? Well, he, what, what he meant by it was he said to his people, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we are. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join them, themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. In other words, this new king, and he probably wasn't an Egyptian king. There was a, there was a period of time for like 40 years where a foreign ruler came and ruled Egypt. But he recognized that the, the Jews were becoming so populous that this was going to be a major problem, a demographic problem. You know, people worry about this with immigration, and it's, there's, there's truth to it. You know, when you let in so many people from a different country, that can change. If there's enough, just demographically, that's going to change your country. And so Pharaoh, this, this new king, saw this was going to happen, and he had a plan to stop it, like a, three, a three-phase plan to stop it. And, and the first part of the plan was just to put them to hard labor, to afflict them so that they wouldn't do well. But that doesn't work. They even multiply more. Then, then the next plan is to kill all the boys who are born. That's, that's a real an extermin- extermination plan. Mm-hmm. But that, that plan doesn't work. Uh, and so he has all these wicked schemes to, to try to deal with this growing nation of the Jews. But, of course, because of God's sovereignty and his blessing and his purposes for his own people, none of it works. David, I find it interesting that we are not told what this king's name is. He's just described as a new king who came to the throne of Egypt, who obviously didn't pay attention in school and study his history books because he has no idea who Joseph is. That's right. That's a very good perceptive point, Bill, because Joseph had done everything for Egypt. You know, Joseph was Jewish, of course. He came down as a slave sold by his brothers, and he rises to the top of the land, literally second in command of of Egypt. He saved, literally saved the country in the midst of this unbelievable famine. He saved his own family. He was revered. The people just loved him. Well, now, three or four hundred years later, uh, they've forgotten their history. And, and there's a good lesson there for us today is that, you know, those who forget their history are doomed to repeat the bad parts of it. And uh, that was the case back then. He didn't remember who Joseph was. He didn't care. He was the new man on the block. He was in charge. He thought he knew better. And he was going to deal with these people that he saw increasing too much for his like for his liking, and uh, it was all going to blow up in his face. You know, David, David. Even when I read something like in verse eleven, so the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves and put brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down under heavy burdens. Of course, you and I have no idea what a brutal slave driver would look like how that person would act, and what they were suffering. But I bet it was horrific. It was horrific. And I think this is where a movie like The Ten Commandments actually probably is pretty accurate, where they, they show in the movie just the the taskmasters, like you're saying, the Egyptians over the Jews. I mean, they were just being whipped and slogging around and making mud and bricks. And I, I actually told my wife the other day when I was reading this, I said, you know, 
sometimes when we have a hard work day where we're just going from beginning to end and so forth, I, I said, you know what, we probably shouldn't complain very much. We don't have people whipping us and, you know, <laughs> driving us. And we, we go to bed tired at night. These people were, were literally enslaved and in a horrific situation and crying out to God to be saved. And God eventually answered their prayer. Yeah, if you want me to work harder, don't whip me. Bring me an iced tea and a scone. And I might work harder, you know. But that's not the right motivation is to hit me. All right, David, let me take a little break. We'll come back. Lots more with David Wheaton as we study the book of Exodus. Looking forward to this. Be right back. Wednesday. It's really nice to start this with David Wheaton. We are uh, starting off a brand new series on the book of Exodus, Epic Exodus. I didn't hear the whole title. I, I don't have it memorized yet, David, but Epic Exodus is what I'm going to say for now. Does that work? That works. How, how an epic e- exodus displays an awesome God. I love that. I love it. All right, so let's let's dig back into what's going on uh, in, with the Hebrew midwives uh they're lying yeah. and and did, and did god reward them yeah so you know as we talked about before the break you know the the, the king and then he gets out of power then a, a pharaoh an egyptian pharaoh gets back in power and he takes up the, the same sort of genocidal <laughs> intent that the previous king had and, and he's going to try to do whatever he can to try to 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 basically exterminate or cut way back on the, the jews so they're not a, a threat to egypt and so the second part of his plan uh, is to kill all the, the boys that are born uh, to the Jewish people, let the girls live. It says in verse 15, it says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, uh, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other name was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and you see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. Hmm. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. And so the very next verse says the, the, the Hebrew midwives feared God. And that, that's the important phrase there. They feared God. In other words, they had a reverence. They were going to obey God above some, above some wicked, evil human authority. And so that's what they did. They did not obey the king of Egypt. They let the, they let the boys live. As a matter of fact, the excuse they gave, though, and to your question about whether they lied, when, when the king of Egypt questioned them about it, the midwife said to them, the Hebrew women, they're, they're not like the Egyptian women. They, they are vigorous. They give birth before the midwife can get to them. And then it says in verse 20, so God was good to the midwives, and the people continued to multiply and became very mighty. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. And, and there's just a couple points, I think, to pull out for us today. And number one is, it says in Proverbs sixteen six, by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. And, you know, we all struggle with temptation and sin in our life. And when we have a great fear or a reverence for God, when we understand that God is watching and weighing and he's our, we're accountable to him, he's our authority, we answer to him, uh, we're in relationship with him, he's the one who created us. And when we have that fear, that reverence, of not wanting to disappoint or offend God, 
that keeps us away from doing wrong things. And this is what the Hebrew midwives had. They had a fear of God, it said. And so they weren't going to do this. Now, did they lie about it? Well, they didn't exactly lie. They, they told the truth that the Hebrew women did you know, give birth quickly, different apparently than the Egyptian women at the time. So they didn't maybe give the whole story, but they gave a truthful story of what was taking place. In other words, God was blessing his people, and no matter what they were going to try to do to keep them from multiplying so much, it wasn't going to work. And so the other little point here is there's always been a an anti-Semitic genocidal plot against the Jewish people. You know, from this time and the, the, the exodus uh, going on here, you know, to later on in, in the time of Esther, King Queen Esther, uh, you know, up when they were trying to kill all the Jews there, uh, to, you know, times in the New Testament or the Holocaust and with Hitler or some places in the Middle East. I mean, this is a this is a thread that goes through world history, and the only thing you can ascribe this to. I mean, no no other people have tried to be exterminated so many times beyond the Jews, and the only thing you can go to really explain this is just the satanic plot that hates God's people and the Messiah from whom that from and the people from whom the Messiah actually came. Yeah, it's, it's interesting too, David, to think of the commands that were given to the midwives that if a baby's born, to kill them. I mean, I can't think of anything more horrific than these midwives helping giving birth to these beautiful new babies. Very much. I mean, it was, you know, it reminds me of the time when, when Christ was born. You know, what, what did uh, Herod say then? Go right. go down to Bethlehem and kill all the, the baby boys under age two. I mean, this is just vicious, brutal. It's hard to even comprehend. Uh, and yet, uh, not, not to make this, you know, too... too uh, too strong for today, but, you know, we have an abortion industry in this country uh, that is vicious against unborn children in this country. It, it, it's tragic, it's wicked, it's murderous, and God, boy, God is a very long-suffering God to uh, not really strongly punish this nation, or perhaps he is, or coming up, who knows, but uh, there, there's a version of this taking place in the, today in America. I agree. David, let's talk about baby Moses. Yeah, well, the dominant figure in in the whole book of Exodus is, is Moses. He's the one that's going to lead his own people out of Egypt to the to the promised land. And it says in chapter two, as you turn you turn the page, um, that Moses' parents were both from the tribe of Levi, and that tribe was 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 designated by God to be the priestly tribe. In other words, that one tribe was going to be responsible for all the religious duties and services. Uh, in for for the for the nation of Israel, they would serve in the in the tabernacle and then the temple someday. So it's important to note that Moses and his brother Aaron and their sister Miriam were all from that tribe of Levi, which was the the priestly tribe. So Moses was going to be more than a leader he, of, of the people. He was going to be like not just a political leader, but he was also going to be a religious leader as well. It's from the priestly tribe, but. You know, this edict was still going on, Bill, when Moses was finally born in the midst of this enslavement and this, this rigorous, bitter work they were having to do all the time. And it says in the beginning of chapter 2, it says that Moses' mother conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was beautiful, and she hid him for three months. So she's clearly trying to avoid uh, this edict of Pharaoh, because once the midwives wouldn't fulfill his commands, then Pharaoh commanded all his own people— 
to kill Jewish baby boys wherever they could. It, was, it went from away from the midwives to just anyone, just get rid of them at all costs. I mean, just a brutal, brutal situation. But Moses' mother obviously doesn't, is not going to just go down without a fight here. She hides him. She puts him in a little basket, covers it with tar and pitch, and puts him amongst the reeds in the Nile River to hope to avoid him being found. And it says she steps back from a distance from the river to find out what would happen to him. I mean, if you think about that sentence, I mean, like, what do you mean what's going to happen? Is it a crocodile going to eat him? And who's going to pick him? I mean, did she know something? Would someone would pick him up or, or what? Well, what happens to him is another one of these stories, like of Joseph in Genesis, where you go from being put in a little wicker basket in the Nile River as a baby to all of a sudden being found by the daughter of Pharaoh mm. and being brought into the palace and being raised for the first 40 years of your life in Pharaoh's palace. I mean, you cannot make this up. And so th this is what happens to Pharaoh, and so uh, to Moses, excuse me. And so Moses grows up right in Pharaoh's palace, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He's highly educated. He's powerful. He's a fully a part of palace life. And yet, as he gets older, he realizes that this is not going to be his future as being part of Pharaoh's you know, palace court. His future is with his own people. And he turns down the, the rich and uh, abundant and indulgent life of the palace to go really to identify with his own people, the slaves, and lead them out of Egypt. David, help me connect the dots here. How did they, how, when, the, uh, when they were told to go find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby, <laughs> uh, they come back with the baby's mother? Help me connect those dots. Yeah, I, did, I didn't include that just for sake of time, but since you asked, what happens is, so the, Moses' mother puts him in a basket, puts him in the reeds on the side of the Nile, and she stands back at a distance, but also has her uh, her daughter, probably Miriam, okay. watch what, what takes place. Got it. And so, lo and behold, Pharaoh's daughter walks out of the palace, comes down with her maidens to the, to the river, hears the baby maybe crying or something, picks it up, has compassion on Moses, and says to the girl, who is Moses' sister, okay, standing right there, go find one of the Hebrew women <laughs> to nurse this child. And what, what's the daughter do? Well, I know the perfect person. <laughs> Brings Moses' mother over. I love Moses it. mother raises him, weans him, and then adopts the, Moses is adopted into the, the, the daughter's home in the palace. Yeah, fantastic. So it's just God's sovereignty all the way through. You, 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 you know, you, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, we can't, and this is what is so spectacular about studying God's Word. is It's so amazing and wonderful. David, thanks for a great start to the study of the book of Exodus. I can't wait to get through this uh, series with you, and I'm looking forward to our next time together. So am I, Bill. Thank you. Uh, have a great day. David Wheaton has been my guest. You can go to thechristianworldview.org, learn more about David, of course, and learn about his writing and his books and his radio show, which I listen to every week because it's awesome. All right, we'll take a short break. When we come back, Dr. Ann Bradley is going to be joining the program. She is an economist and one of my favorite economists. So, like, I, I think I know one, which is her. So be careful there. Be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno, Brad 
We're off to a great start on Wednesday, and it's just going to get better and better. My guest, Dr. Ann Rathbone-Bradley, is the academic director at the Fund for American Studies. It's a nonprofit educational organization that promotes the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership. She also teaches economics, and she is a big deal at the Institute for Faith, Works, and Economics. Hey, Ann. Hi, Bill. How are you? I never know how to uh, introduce you, just so you know. Oh, just say Ann. <laughs> she talks about econ. I know. That's <laughs> what I want to talk about anyway. All right. Question. I got a lot of them for you, Ann. Did okay. you see the inflation coming? Oh, my goodness. There's so much debate about whether it's actually coming. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it, there's something which this is, I always joke, Bill, that this is why economists don't really have any friends because we <laughs> invent terms like the misery index. Mm-hmm. And that's a real thing. It's called the misery index, and it measures the combination of unemployment and inflation. And so if you look, it's just remarkable. If you look in, in 2019, uh, before the pandemic hit, it was about 5%, 5.2%, um, compared to its all-time high in 1980 of about 22%. Today, it's 10%. So it's not out of control. It's mm-hmm. certainly not the worst it's ever been, uh, but it's a combination of higher levels of unemployment and the rise in prices and inflation rates in general. Yep. So I think we're there. I mean, in, in the sense that this is an inevitable result of the monetary policy that we're pursuing and the fiscal policy that we're pursuing. And so um, we can't kind of live in a, you know, a world with no inflation forever. Right, right. So, and the Federal Reserve, uh, they boosted the uh, M2 money supply by $4 trillion this year. That's a very mm-hmm. big number. It's a very big number. Yeah, so as the economy rebounds, uh, will this, will they do a reverse course on all this uh, quantitative easing, or will, will all this excess money just lead to more inflation? Well, I think it depends on partially what they do, but basically they, as, as you said, they've taken on a recent policy of purchasing large scale, like large scale purchases of financial assets. And this, you know, kind of puts money into the economy. And when the supply of money in the economy increases, well, what does that mean? It means that it's cheaper to get a loan. And so the goal when the Fed pursues this types of, of quantitative easing is for um, the government to be able to induce economic growth. And so, of course, the question for all of us, I think, here is, does that work? Yeah. Um, And will we keep doing it? In addition, by the way, I will say, and you know this because we've talked about it before, but, you know, we spent $5 trillion in in stimulus in one year, (laughs) and we're talking about more. Yeah. And so it's just an unsustainable combination of events. Yeah. Um, the Federal Reserve is, is being activist is maybe the word I would use okay. in its monetary policy. Okay. Um, and so what it's doing is instead of just kind of uh, monitoring the money supply, it is actually giving out loans and kind of trying to stimulate employment in more interventionist ways. And so it, I, I, you know, I think the way to say it is, the Fed, which is in charge of monetary policy, is now also pursuing fiscal policy. That's, and so that's going to lead to more stimulus. Yeah. But as the economy is coming back, are they going to reverse any of these strategies 
Uh, well, you know, I don't know what they're going to do, but yeah. I hope that they will back off um, because I don't, you know, here's the thing about when you think about, you know, if I was just um, teaching about money supply and money demand, I mean, the most kind of simplistic way to think about it is that money is has to be demanded to be valuable, right? People have to want to hold the currency. People have to want to use it to exchange and buy things. And so to the extent that people want to hold the dollar, the dollar is valuable. And so that's what we want. We want people to want to hold the dollar and to use the dollar. Um, and so the Fed is very conservative in this sense. I mean, it's not like other central banks, which just kind of engages in reckless printing of money and things like this. And that's why people have historically wanted to hold the dollar. Um, but, you know, to me, what we have to do is we have to get our fiscal house in order. And of course, you and I have talked about this many times, but it's worth talking about again, because we've spent so much money in such a short period of time. And, you know, you have to pay for that somehow. You can't just kind of push money into the economy forever and think that that means you don't have to pay your bills. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah. And I'd love for you to differentiate for listeners the Federal Reserve and the the Federal Reserve, what they're doing and what the federal government is doing, because they're, they've spent an unprecedented sure. $4 trillion in the last year. Absolutely. So the federal government um, basically has, you know, goals. So the federal government, again, in the broadest sense of thinking about what they do, they have a productive function and a protective function. So the protective function are things like you know, protect the nation from invasion, um, provide for the rule of law, provide for the protection of your rights and your freedoms. Those, you know, we all kind of understand that. The productive function of government is where it gets a little bit more dicey in terms of, you know, if we ask the question, what do people think the government should do, right? You ask 10 people that and you get 100 different answers is what I always say. So people don't always agree on what the government should do. From an economic perspective, what we say is that productive function is they should provide for public goods which are goods that are consumed jointly and really the private market can't provide them. So an example would be national defense, right? Mm-hmm. We know that private providers can't do that. Um, there's no incentive for entrepreneurs, et cetera. So you need the government to engage in the, the production of things. But the problem when, when the government decides to spend things, and of course they do a lot more than just courts and police and roads and national defense, they do healthcare and all sorts of things that the government is engaged in spending money on. But think about the government. It's an entity that is a bureaucracy, and it doesn't make money by day. So it's not like Amazon. You know, Amazon, if it earns a profit, then it can take that profit and make investments back in its own company, or it can give to charity, or it can do a lot of things with the money. That's not how the federal government or state or local governments operate. They have to take money from other sectors in order to give you the things that you say you want. So they do that through taxation policy and through monetary policy. And so that's the differentiation. What the Federal Reserve is responsible for, I kind of I think, you know, the best way to understand it is to kind of think about it's the banker's bank. So it thinks about money supply issues and lending rates among mm. banks, whereas the federal government is making active decisions about what to spend on. And so if the federal government spends more than it has, it runs a deficit. And if it runs a deficit, then it has to engage in debt accumulation to finance it. And so that's where you start to get in trouble 
Um, and so this is where you know, a lot of economists, myself included, are worried about the future mm-hmm. because, you know, government spending as a percentage of GDP, for example, to the financial crisis was 35 percent. Today, it's over 100 percent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So again, you huh. just can't engage in this kind of spending without having the cash to pay for it forever. Yeah. We haven't seen that level of debt since World War II. Exactly. So how come no one in government is really that concerned about this level of debt? I don't get it. Well, I'm going to try to give you my best non-cynical answer to that, which is um, hard. I'm going to I'm going to get my strength to do that. But, you know, the the problem is that politicians uh, attention spans are short. And the reason is because they're very focused on election cycles. And so if you if you look at government spending over time, but in general, in government spending in the past, in the recent past, this is not just a Democrat or Republican thing. This has been done together. Both parties have allowed the size and scope of the federal government to get too too large. So it's a bipartisan problem. And I think the reason for that is because um, big government is good for politicians and their constituents. Um, and so it's not even enough, I don't think, to have a principled coalition of small government people that are advocating for restraint. But what you need to have on top of that is actual constraints that make it very hard for the government to overstep its mandate. And of course, as we know, this is historically very hard. It works better in the United States than in certainly in some countries. But I do think you know, my children are, are are young, so I'm not ready for grandchildren yet. That's not going to happen anytime soon. But when I think about it this way, my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren will be born with debt mm-hmm. that they had no, they have not given any consent to because of decisions people are making today. And I, as an individual citizen, am, am almost powerless to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So when you think about it that way, we have to reform the system. It's more than just getting principled people in there. I do think that's important. But I think somehow we have to kind of really roll back the size of the state. Um, this is a much bigger problem uh, that's a tough one to solve. Mm-hmm. But it, I think it's what needs to happen. Yeah. So, Anne, I'm seeing lots and lots of commercial residential construction going on. It seems like things are look busy and bustling. And I know mm-hmm. there's a shortage of labor. There's a shortage of building materials across the country. Um, is is right now a, a, a really good time for a, a two trillion dollar infrastructure bill? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that it is a right or a good time for that. Um, so we've we've done a lot of this type of spending in the recent past. And what you you know again going back to kind of how does economics help us think through these questions? The economy is not an engine that somebody starts. It's, it's, not, it's not this kind of closed system that we tinker with and then we get new outcomes that we desire. I, and maybe if, that, if we could do that, it would be a lot easier to get the things we want, right? Economic growth and job growth and um, high levels of, of employment and all these things. But the economy is an organic um, set of complex phenomena. And so I think that the problem is with infrastructure projects. Some people are certainly going to benefit from them. Mm-hmm. They will stimulate employment in some sectors. They will fund some pet projects that some states and localities have. But, you know, how do, how do those decisions get made? Usually by people who have political privilege. And so I think that 
infrastructure bills are, are usually just kind of code for corporate welfare. Yeah. I'm not saying we never should spend on infrastructure. I'm really not. But to use infrastructure spending as a reason to generate, quote unquote, jobs, I think is the worst reason you can do it. Because if you actually just like step out of the way of the economy and let it adapt, it's been through a lot of changes this past year. If we just let it adapt, it will because the beauty of kind of market-based economies is that entrepreneurs only get paid if they solve our problems. And so we want to step out of the way of that happening. And I think there's been many, many great stories during the, the pandemic of entrepreneurs being creative, finding new and better ways you know, to innovate around the obstacles they face to serve their customers. And that's what's going to get you economic growth. And that is what's going to get you more people employed and being able to thrive and it's not just even about putting you know, food on the table. We want people to be able to do that, but we want so much more for people. We want them to be able to fully kind of experience human flourishing. And so I think it's government is not in charge of that. They can't be. And I think these infrastructure um, bills tend to be kind of short-term shiny objects that we think are going to get us over the next hump, but then they leave us with more debt. And then, you know, we kind of kick the can down the road. And, and say, well, we'll think about that later. And later is going to come. <laughs> I think later is here. <laughs> so Yeah. And after the show, I'm going to call my bumper sticker guy, Ann Bradley, for president. Oh, okay. That's got a nice ring to it, doesn't it? I like that. I mean, maybe. Yeah, well, let's think maybe. about it. Let's think about it. I'll okay. be your VP. I'll be my right. campaign manager. Yeah, all right, all right. Let's take a little break. We'll come back lots more with Dr. Ann Bradley. She's written an article in the Washington Times that I want to talk about as well. Be right back. Dr. Ann Bradley. She's the academic director at the Fund for American Studies, which is a nonprofit uh, that promotes the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership. She also teaches a course on economics, but I just think of her as Ann. Um, all right, Ann, I got another question for you. Just where we're thinking about the, the inflation idea and the shortages, there's been lots of items that are causing concern. You look at the price of lumber, uh, computer chips, used cars, gas. I've even heard chicken is going up, um, mm-hmm. and even I think it was Chick Fil A are reducing the number of ketchup packets they give you. So, mm-hmm. is this a, a kind of a short-term supply chain issue, or is this COVID going to cause something in pr- terms of production that's going to be a little scarier than this? This is such a good question. So interesting too, because you just mentioned a lot of different industries, and you're seeing some, you know, price increases. So we call that price inflation. And so kind of we want to go back deeper into the supply chain and, and the demand and conditions and say, well, what's, what's causing this? What's, you know, what's the reason for this? So when we think about um, ketchup packets and, you know, kind of Chick-fil-A reducing, I think they're also kind of running low on all their Chick-fil-A sauces I read. So, you know, what, what is, what's going on there and, and chicken as well. And this applies to lumber too. The, the 
you know, the lockdowns and the, the being at home for a year really changed patterns of consumption for mm-hmm. consumers. So, and I want you to think too, you know, but you kind of have to think about different aspects of the income distribution. So if you're upper middle class and above, you know, this kind of demographic, I'm not saying COVID was easy for them, but it's, it's easier to adapt when you have money, right? And so, you know, you might refit your office and you might buy new laptops for your children and you're schooling from home and you're working from home and all this stuff, but, you know, your income may not have taken a significant hit or maybe not a hit at all. And so now you have all this time to engage in home projects that you haven't engaged in before. And so the demand for lumber has been kind of facilitated by that, but also by um, mortgage rates really kind of just going to unprecedented lows. And so there's this now demand for new construction and housing projects are getting going again. And, you know, when you think about lumber, there's a time production process. I believe Mm -hmm. I was reading that it takes two years to kind of establish a new lumber mill. Not only that, but you mentioned this earlier, um, we're, you know, people who employ workers in lumber mills are having a hard time hiring. So there's a labor shortage. There's a demand increase. There's different preferences and patterns of behavior because of COVID. And in some cases, supply was disrupted during COVID. So, you know, each industry has its own story. As far as catch-up goes, um, it seems to be that the story there is that everybody's starting to eat out um, or or do to-go ordering. And so, you know, if you used to go and sit down in your restaurant, you would get served a side of ketchup from a large, you know, ketchup bottle, or maybe they bring the whole bottle to your table and say, go for it. Uh, Now everything is in these styrofoam and cardboard containers and, you know, they don't know how much people want and they want to satisfy what you want. And so this kind of a whole new world for restaurants and demand for takeout really went up because now people are stuck inside seven days a week. You're cooking all the time and you don't want to cook all the time. And so again, uh, if you can afford to eat out more, those families were. So that's causing, you know, the demand is causing, um, suppliers to say, well, we need more ketchup packets, but those things aren't instantaneous uh, in a market economy. So what's the short-term response is that the, when the price goes up, you know, consumers kind of get the memo that their consumption needs to slow down temporarily. And that allows the supply to be uh, replenished. Yeah. I'm, I'm relieved the uh, toilet paper consumption panic is off. Me too. Yeah. Now you, that's something you want to have when you go, when you show up to the store, right? That's true. Yeah, so you wrote mm-hmm. a very interesting piece in the Washington Times, and it's entitled, Price Gouging Laws Make Us Feel Good But Act Bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, this was uh, inspired by uh, uh, an, an economist friend of mine who posted a picture uh, right after the Colonial Pipeline attack, which, of course, caused a supply shock. Um, that to an oil pipeline that serves most of, you know, kind of the East Coast, which is where I live. And he posted a picture on social media of somebody taking, you know, kind of a, a, a big, large plastic bin and filling it with gasoline oh and putting it in the back of it, which this just seems like bad practice in the oh. first place. Yeah. You know, everybody saw those pictures of people putting them in trash bags. And I thought, I'm not really sure how you're going to get it from the trash bag back into your car, but that's, I guess, a separate question <laughs> for a different time. But people were panicking. I mean, that's the bottom line is that people were panicking and it's our it's in our nature to panic 
when we don't know what the future holds and you have this exogenous shock in supply. And so I think the price gouging laws are generally there, and let's just assume, give all the policymakers the benefit of the doubt. The assumption is if we limit the amount that the price can increase in the short term, then we're going to make sure there's more for everyone. And that's exactly what we want, right? More for everyone. We don't want just a few people to get all the gas. We don't want the hoarding. But in fact, limiting the price from rising to its new natural rate, again, because there was a supply shock, actually instigates hoarding. And this is what we saw this with hand sanitizer. We saw it with toilet paper in the early days of the pandemic. So again, if you don't let prices move, then consumers don't get the signal change. And so I always liken a price to a traffic light. Green means go, red means stop, yellow means kind of either speed up or slow down, but proceed with caution. And so, you know, each one of us, each, you know, for me, red might be a different price than for you based on our needs and demands. But I need the price, as a consumer, I need that price to change to give me the information. If I don't get the information that supply is less than it was before, then I'm just going to continue consuming at the old rates. And again, some people are going to hoard. And who's going to hoard? The people who have more time and more money. If I'm a wealthy person, I can pay someone to go stand in a gas line for me. If I have a lot of time, I'm going to stand in a gas line. And so this is kind of a form of discrimination that we don't really want. And so it's it's a counterintuitive but important point, which is that price gouging laws restrict the market from doing what it does well, which is adjusting to change. Mm-hmm. So price controls would be the opposite of free markets. The opposite. Mm-hmm. Because, again, it's arbitrary. So I, I was I was reading about price gouging laws. They very much vary from state to state. In California, which is not a big surprise, um, I think it's a class one misdemeanor and punishable with up to $10,000 and a year in prison. That's a pretty big penalty. And the language that they use is that it can't be more than the price can't increase more than 10 percent than its average over the past six months. But the whole point is that six months ago, we didn't have a cyber attack that led to a supply shock. So, you you know, six months ago doesn't tell you anything about what the price should be today. And so I think that's the problem is we want to feel safe. We want to feel protected. Nobody wants to be price gouged. Mm-hmm. But just because a price goes up in a time of crisis does not mean that price gouging is occurring. It just means that there's less of this. And so we want to slow down that consumption from a stewardship perspective, because it ensures that we'll have more for a little bit longer. Yeah, it's a little sometimes hard to wrap our, our minds around that, but the price gouging laws do make us feel good, but you do tend to behave badly. You do. You know, because you pay, it, 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 I think it, it, it heightens the sense of panic. Yeah. which is that this is going to be gone tomorrow, so I need to run out and do whatever it takes to get it today. And I think that's why people were doing things like, and I don't think, you know, it's not like everybody did this, but I think some people, when you saw the pictures of filling the trash bags, I mean, again, my question is, how are you going to get that anywhere? It's also very dangerous. How are oh. you going to get back in your vehicle? There's so many questions, but it's just a panic. You know, it's a panic moment, and so you just do what you feel like you have to do, in, in an attempt to protect yourself. Yeah. And when the pipeline had uh, was disrupted, and I know you live in the area, how long did you once wait for gas? Um, so 
I didn't go out the first two days, and I, but I was the, the, there's a station near my house, and I was kind of watching. Um, and so it went up by ten cents one day, and then ten cents the next day, and then ten, so it was kind of increasing by ten cents a gallon every day. And then when I drove past it for several days, it said there were you could see the signs on the pump stations. It said there was nothing. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of conserved more. I mean, I had to take my kids to and from school, but I didn't really do anything else. I had a little bit. Then two days later, I went and I didn't even wait in line at all. So oh, nice. it wasn't such a huge shock that, you know, we were out for weeks. Yeah. Um, and I was happy. I mean, it sounds weird, right? But I was happy that the price did go up a bit. It probably didn't go up as much as it should. And I say happy because I don't, you know, I don't want to pay high prices, but I also don't want to run out either. Yeah, exactly. So the economist in me says, okay, we need that price increase to slow us down yeah. and, and, you know, get that supply back into production. Right. And thanks so much for being on the show today. It's always a delight talking to you. Thank you, Bill, for having me. Always yep. fun to be here. Yep. Dr. Ann Bradley's been my guest. You can go to the Institute for Faith, Works, and Economics. That's T-I-F-W-E dot org. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Michael Heiser, part two, talking about the unseen realm, what's going on in the unseen realm. Can't wait for more of Dr. Michael Heiser. I'll be joined, of course, by Dr. Peter Kapsner. Lots of doctors here today. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.